When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Daniel L. Hatcher, author of the book Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. How are you doing today? Good. Hello, Deidre, and thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started with this project. Sure. Well, well, I've been an advocate for low-income children and adults for over 25 years now. Um, my, my earliest experiences were representing children pulled into the uh, dysfunctional Baltimore foster care system. Um, and those experiences were overwhelming and um, still um, even haunt me today and inspire me today simultaneously to keep striving both in my individual advocacy and in my research and scholarship um, to try to expose not just the individualized harm that can happen to low-income clients, but to the systemic um, challenges and harm. Um, and um, as I continued representing both both children and adults and all areas really of, of civil poverty law, um, I began encountering examples where the systems, the, the, the agencies, the very justice institutions that are intended to serve vulnerable populations are instead using them. Um, and, and my last book, the, the poverty industry, uh, I write primarily and, and expose m- many different ways in which our human service agencies are, are partnering with private actors, often for-profit companies, to turn low-income individuals and children into revenue tools. So in this book, I, I uncover what, what I fear is even more concerning, that our very systems of, of justice have become part of that poverty industry and have really shifted completely their mission and and our foundational systems away from their intended mission of maximizing equal and impartial justice to instead maximizing revenue and efficiency, using low-income populations and children rather than serving them with with justice. And um, in the examples I uncover in the book across the country, the um, the impact, uh, the harmful impact is devastatingly disproportionate based upon race um, from, from every city to every county in the country. 1996, what happened in regards to the removing of children from their homes? I think that was a pivotal year. Sure. Well, well and what I uncover is, is just one of the examples in the book out, out of Ohio, right, with, with the juvenile courts there. And it's a contractual mechanism that's actually used in, in multiple states. Um, but while what was called welfare reform, right, the, 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 the block granting of um, cash assistance to the states, and, and now unfortunately states are um, only using a very small percentage of that for actual assistance to low-income individuals. But while that's happening, you have some juvenile courts that have actually began to begin to find a way to tap into a different federal funding stream, uh, which is 
under Title IV-E of the Social Security Act, and that's the provision that provides um, funding from the federal government that is supposed to go to foster care agencies to improve their ability to provide services, right? But instead, the courts found a way to tap into this. So what you have in, in Ohio that, that I uncover as, as, as one of the stark examples is the juvenile courts began, they, they, they discovered this, this contractual mechanism in 96, and now, now you know, over 27 courts, I believe, last I checked, have signed on, counties in, in, in Ohio, actually contract to become part of the executive branch to take on the foster care agency placing role, right? And, and you know, if we just pause and think about that for a second. So what that means is, you know, we, we had a revolutionary war in this country more than a few years ago, which was um, about the idea of escaping tyranny, the centralized power and the harm that can come from centralized power in the, har- in the hands of one entity, in that case, the British crown, right? So the early foundations of this country's structure of government was built upon a separation of powers, right? The, the crucial separation of power between the branches uh, of government. And within that, the independence of our courts being the most important. Uh, but here you have the juvenile courts actually contracting to become part of the executive branch to take on the foster care placing agency role. And then what they do, they, they, they would, the court puts on its court hat, adjudicates a child delinquent, right? It enters that order. And then that would allow it to put on its contractual foster care placing agency hat, placing the child outside the home, potentially even in a residential treatment center operated by the courts, right? And then the court shifts again and puts on its court hat again and rules on its own actions. And if it rules on itself favorably, it can generate more revenue through the children. And, you know, it's so, it's, it's a, just a blatant um, uh, violation of the constitutional separation of powers, of what's intended for our constitutional due process and partiality um, requirements. I argue in the book um, that it's an abdication of ethical obligations, right? And it's when you start digging into this practice, it just becomes worse, right? So it's, it's stark to begin with. And then you understand that the, they're not just generating revenue through the services, right? It's administrative costs, and, you know, if you think about, you know, administrative costs almost sounds a little dull at first, but, but so what they're actually doing, and it's not just courts, prosecutors' offices and, and multiple states that I uncover, sometimes probation uh, departments um, as well, um, are you, you literally using children to fund overhead? Um, when you start seeing how the contractual mechanisms work, they'll, they'll use children to um, uh, pay um, salaries, fringe benefits, um, travel costs, um, in some jurisdictions, even to pay bar dues, right? Um, I've seen trainings where it discusses using children, right, to pay even the depreciation costs of courthouse buildings. Um, and then I even saw an example where it discussed the ability to maximize this revenue through administrative costs where you could literally claim the administrative costs of the process of claiming administrative costs, right? You know, so it becomes almost like a pyramid scheme and and, and a, and a factory-like commodification and the children become the commodities. Now, you talk about Ohio. Do you think Ohio is similar to other places in the United States or are there some differences? Well, both. They're, they're both similar, and some uh, states have very, very similar revenue contracts, such as the juvenile court contracts I just described. Um, I've uh, located similar contractual arrangements um, in Louisiana, um, Illinois, um, Michigan, and more. And then as you look at other states, there's similar iterations, but with some slight differences, Right. You know, and and really, as you look across the country, state by state, county by county, there can be some variations in these contractual deals. But the themes are the same. Right. Again, they're turning their attention away from the mission of equal and impartial justice, away from serving individuals with equal and impartial justice to using 
vulnerable individuals, right, for maximizing revenue and efficiency, that, that, that increasing factory mindset. Um, and and it's, 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 it's not just theoretical, right? When we look at it, when you shift from that mission, devastating harm results. Tell the listeners about this uh, fictitious person, Sean and his mother, and how that case represents so many. Sure. I, I write about in the book, um, Sean and, and, and his mother. And I, I, Sean, the S uh, is a dollar sign um, instead of the S because Sean becomes a commodity. And, and Sean is simultaneously hypothetical and real. Um, real to the extent of, of former children I, I directly represented and parents um, that I represented and continue to represent, and also real to the extent of the data, right, that of, of what we know of, about children in Sean's circumstances. And, and, you know, candidly, he's hard to write about because I, I know Sean, you know, and, I, and I, I know his mother, you know, like I know the stories of, of what they're going through. And, and then again, like you, when you represent an individual who's struggling with, with all the barriers that, that poverty brings, and then you realize that the systems, the very systems that are intended to serve them are actually monetizing them even further. So it's not just that they're harmed from the difficulties of poverty, that harm is being monetized. And, you know, Sean, you know, you could have uh, an example, a situation where, um, again, the juvenile court could generate revenue um, directly through a contract from removing Sean from his home, um, placing him into a foster care system. And then that same court in Ohio and in other jurisdictions can have another contract um, to pull in more, more revenue through the child support, the 4D child support system. And I can talk about that a little more, but they'll call it child support, but it's actually pursuing now Sean's impoverished mother to pay back the cost of foster care for which the court just ordered, right? So it's going to generate revenue from the removal and then pull in more revenue by pursuing the poor mother who's, who's desperately trying to reunify with their son. All they both want is to be together and the system's that are intended to serve them are, are instead monetizing them. And, and that just continues, you know, as, as we look into the practices of prosecutors and probation and then the, the wide variety of detention facilities. You talk about foster care candidates. Tell us about who are the candidates? Right. It's, it's a, a, a great question and, and a concerning phrase, right? You know, when, when we think about it, the idea um, initially, I think, is good. You know, like you know, with with the federal major funding stream for for um, foster care funding to state agencies, is um, providing the potential for funding to be made available before um, removal, right? But what you see through these contracts, so if, if you go back again to the juvenile courts of Ohio, and I'm not, I've seen it in multiple places as well, in addition to whether through juvenile court contracts in California, that, that's statewide contracts with the probation department. Um, if they label children as a foster care candidate at constant risk of removal, and typically then those children who come in from the juvenile justice side, you know, you know, after being um, charged with delinquency in some states, they, they just call it unruly right? If they're, if they're pulled in, labeled as, as such, right? Then assigned, you know, into probation, which means you've got a probation officer um, who's overseeing your entire life, right? Including potentially even using ankle monitors, unannounced visits at school, um, ordering various treatments and therapies, um, unending drug testing, right? You name it, right? All while potentially charging, you know, even more, um, for the probationary services. Um, if, if the child is processed as that foster care candidate continuously, then the institution, the courts, right, or, or, the, and, or the probation departments, sometimes prosecutors, can pull in more revenue. Um, I found an example of that out of California, um, where it was um, a training and how to pull down more revenue through this process of, of labeling children as foster care candidates. And this training slide for, for the probation 
departments literally explains how um, if, if you indicate more negative information on a, on a regular report, you can keep pulling down the money, right? And, and they even use an example where um, you know, the, they might have listed all okay now in this child's and this family's circumstances, but, ha- but use that as a bad example of a report and suggest that instead, well, you need to say they might need some therapy, they might need some more um, counseling services here or, or, or different types of issues that could be present because you've got to make it sound bad in order to keep pulling down the revenue. If all is okay, the money stops, right? And, and it's just so strikingly concerning that, again, it becomes this business mindset, right? And, and their commodities, what they need to keep funding the organizational structure are more kids. Are these court revenue schemes constitutional? I certainly argue not, um, and I think it's it's um, could not be more clear. Um, you know, in these examples where where the courts literally enter contracts to but to simultaneously become part of the executive branch and take on an executive executive branch agency function, where the courts actually become the foster care placing placing agency and then rule on themselves, that's just an obliteration of the concept of separation of powers. Um, and then when the revenue incentive is there, right, it also um, destroys what's supposed to be um, our due process requirements for impartiality. Uh, and impartiality is just such a crucial concept within our, within our constitutional structure for, for all of our institutions of justice, right? Not just our judges, but in, and again, prosecutors, um, probation officers, policing officers, Right, are supposed to be guided and driven by that mission of equal and impartial justice. When that instead shifts towards a financial incentive, that both violates the Constitution and it creates causes significant harm. Making money. In Chapter 3, you look at the child support system. How does the court make money from that child support system? Right. Well, a lot of different ways, unfortunately. And most people don't don't have a good grasp of how, how the child support system works in the U.S. Um, there's really, and this is an oversimplification, but, but there's really two systems of, of child support in America. You have the system for the better off, right? That where usually the child support agency is not actually involved, or you have better off um, parents who um, might be as a part of a broader divorce proceeding, also dividing up property, dividing up multiple houses, right? Determining vacation schedules, um, you name it, right? Um, And sometimes the courts will spend multiple days on proceedings like this and child support will be a part of those proceedings. Um, Those aren't the courts for the poor, right? When we talk about our 4D courts, um, which is the term used, which again is now under Title 4D of the Social Security Act, There's a large stream of federal funds from the federal government provided to states, right, again, intended to help provide needed services to children and their parents. But again, it's been turned into a revenue source of using, right, rather than serving that I uncover in the book. So you could have the same courts and and these contractual deals with child support vary, again, from from state to state. In Ohio, um, while the courts, the juvenile courts contract to take on the foster care agency placing role, the courts also contract to generate revenue from um, this 4D child support scenario. And then what you have is the state agency, the executive branch child support agency, is directly funding, hiring the judicial officers, the judicial magistrates before which the agencies appear, right? And that itself, you know, again, obliterates what, what's supposed to be a separation of powers and due process and partiality. You're not supposed to have one only one party in the system literally paying, right, for the judge is going to hear a, a disputed case. And, and some of those contracts out of Ohio literally saw language where it's phrased in a way that they're literally purchasing court orders, the the executive branch agency. And then you look to other jurisdictions 
uh, Pennsylvania as an example, where statewide in Pennsylvania, the family courts have contracted to become the local child support agency, right, directly. So again, uh, much like those juvenile court contracts in Ohio and other states, in Pennsylvania, they've con- the courts have contracted with the executive branch to take on that child support agency executive branch function. Again, the courts are ruling on their own actions. The courts can literally, as the agency, be prosecuting cases that can lead to incarceration, right? And then ruling on their own actions. And when they rule on themselves favorably, they can pull down more Title 4D revenue. And um, adding to the concern with, with with these contractual deals on child support, again, most people don't realize that much of what we call child support is not actually even owed to children. Um, and much of these cases, um, the, if you have a low-income parent who's needed temporary public assistance or welfare programs, temporary aid to needy families, and each state is called something a little different. Um, if the parent needs temporary assistance, she's required to assign her child support to the government who will then pursue this support, still call it child support, but it's cost recovery, seeking the absent parent to pay for that cost, to repay the cost of that welfare. Same thing um, happens in foster care cases where the agency, um, um, and sometimes like in in Ohio, the agency actually is the court, right? You know, could, could potentially remove the child, Right. And then the court might be monetizing that removal through the through the foster care contract. Um, And then the court will pursue the absent parents to repay the cost of foster care. And um, that monetization of harm, again, is unconstitutional. I argue in the book, it's 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 devastatingly harmful to the to the families. You know, like when you have um, most of the cases in our in our foster care system result from. Uh, various um, circumstances of poverty. Um, there are cases of abuse and neglect. The majority come from the neglect, and most of that neglect is a result of poverty. Most of these parents are, are desperately struggling to get their children back. You know, the children don't want to be in these systems usually, right? You know, in terms of what's happening. And then instead of only providing assistance, to the child and to the child's parent, right? Towards that hopeful reunification, right? You can have this situation where the court, sometimes the prosecutors, again, probation, are monetizing that separation and making it even harder for the for the reunification to occur. And some of these, you know, I could go further, it's almost line by line when you look through the example Pennsylvania contracts of, of constitutional violations, right? They, they're, they're even incentivized in these contracts at, at twice the level to pursue that government owed support where it's, where it's used to repay um, public benefits and foster care than other forms of, of child support. And then on top of that, you know, I literally uncovered they, they, as part of the contract, they have a contingency fee, right? Built into these contracts in Pennsylvania where the courts can literally get a 15% contingency fee if they pursue Medicaid reimbursement on top of that, right? Against the poor families, the poor parents to repay the cost of Medicaid. And again, like when you're supposed to have this constitutionally required impartiality, right? The opposite of impartiality is a contingency fee. Chapter four, you look at the prosecutor's office. They've joined in with this also. How are they getting money from struggling families? Right. Well, it's, and it's a harsh example as well. So, you know, so while the, the, the families are struggling, you know, again, already with the difficulties of poverty. Right. And then these monetized contracts um, from the from the court structures in many states across the country, prosecutors offices will also uh, become part of that contractual monetization. Um, and it can happen both uh, at the county level prosecutor's offices, sometimes called district attorneys, right, depending on what jurisdiction we're in, sometimes statewide attorneys general, 
right? You know, who have these types of contractual incentives. So what happens there, um, again, it varies a little bit state to state, but I've seen examples where in some jurisdictions, prosecutors involved in the foster care side, whether children are pulled into the system from the juvenile justice system or the child welfare system, both increasingly merged in their carceral focus, right? Um, For children who are pulled into either, I've seen contracts where the prosecutor's payment mechanisms through these contracts, right? They can pull in more revenue if more poor children are removed from their home. That's just one example and, and one, literally one of the, 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 the equations, the, the math of the, of the equations listed in the contract for payment. Um, when you follow through the, the equation, the way it works is the more poor kids removed from their homes compared to non-poor kids. And this is frequently called the penetration rate, right? And many jurisdictions will even work with private revenue maximization contractors to help increase that penetration rate. And what that means is to increase the penetration rate, you increase the percentage of poor kids compared to non-poor kids who are removed from their home. And as that percentage goes up, they can use it as a multiplier to draw down more revenue, including those administrative costs that I was talking about before using the children to pay overhead. Um, so, and that's just one of the examples of uh, uh, prosecutors are also using similar contracts to generate revenue through the 4D child support system, millions, uh, you know, upon millions across the country um, often. Uh, so sometimes you can have both the courts and the prosecutors contractually incentivized. The more you prosecute, right, the more um, punitive enforcement actions that can often harm families rather than help, the more revenue they can pull down, right? And then, you know, like, you know, again, like prosecutors are supposed to be guided again by um, impartiality, equal and impartial justice. Uh, uh, under the ethical rules, they're supposed to be ministers of justice, right? They're not supposed to be about a competition, about notching up wins, right? And, and um, certainly not about generating revenue from the low-income litigants, but that's what you see. And then these foster care um, contracts and then the child support contracts adding even further harm, working, you know, sort of haphazardly, but harmfully, symbiotically, you know, within these um, uh, contractual schemes, right? Then you add that into the pursuit of almost endless fines and fees against low-income individuals um, and both uh, adult courts and juvenile courts. Um, you're seeing some improvement with that in some jurisdictions, but not nearly enough. But in the book, you know, I discuss multiple examples where, where, where even prosecutors' offices are pulling in most of their revenue sometimes. Um, uh, there's an example I discuss in the book out of California, where, um, I'm sorry, out of, out of Alabama, where some of the Alabama prosecutor's offices are, are pulling in up to 70% of their total budget from this pursuit of fines and fees. Um, so, and that's after sharing the revenue with the court. So you might have the court issue, you know, uh, order a small fine and it could be in a misdemeanor case, a simple traffic fine case. Quickly, there are fines and fees um, built upon that initial um, ordered fine interest charge on top of that. A $500 fine could grow into a few thousand dollars almost overnight, right? And then the courts are financially incentivized because when the prosecutors in, in Alabama, Alabama help to prosecute and pursue those fines, the revenue is shared, right? And, and even after sharing those takings, Right. And some of those jurisdictions in Alabama, up to 70 percent of the total budget. Again, that's that's the opposite of what impartiality is supposed to be. Now, in Chapter five, you look at probation departments. They are making millions. Tell us about that. Sure. And, and you know, it's like it's, you know, we, we as, as I was doing the research for this book, you know, you, you have to think it has to end somewhere. Right. You know, but it feels like it doesn't. The, the, the more you dig into these contractual 
revenue deals, the more there are, there are, and the more each institution is interconnected with the next. Um, so probation departments in the U S are, are massive. It's, it's a big industry and, and growing. Um, there are some, um, examples, um, you know, out of California, um, for example, you look at the Los, Ange- Los Angeles probation department. Um, they describe themselves as the largest probation department in the nation, more than 6,600 employees providing services for 57,000 adult probationers and more than 12,000 juveniles with an annual budget of $852 million. So you've got this you know, big factory, part of the factory, right, that, that's looking towards um, low-income adults and low-income children, again, frequently as that source of funds, rather than right, solely focusing on them as the beneficiary of intended services of help, right? And, and California, again, as that example, like where I discussed earlier, right, where I've seen training slides where probation departments are advised they need to keep processing children um, and to the 4E system, either through actual removals. The, again, the more poor children removed from their homes, the more the probation department can pull in um, through these contracts and just one county I, I looked at in Orange County, California, the probation department generated over 5.7 million in 4E, this Title 4E foster care revenue in just a year. Um, and that's just one county and just one state, right? You know, like, and uh, then, you know, there are similar contracts in some states as well um, with child support. I talk about the example in New Jersey of the probation department in New Jersey that collaborates with the courts, right? Again, um, financially, contractually incentivized towards um, more harmful prosecution, right? And more punitive mechanisms to pull down even more 4D revenue and, and the courts and the probation department share um, in, in, the, in the revenue. Probation then with the fines and fees pursuit, probation just becomes such a massive you know, almost factory foot soldiers for for this pursuit of fines and fees against the poor. And it's just endless, you know, like it's, so then you have when, when probation offices in multiple states, most states are, are involved at some level in the pursuit of fines and fees. Um, it's not just that they're now seeking and enforcing um, the, the initial quarter fines and fees that may be owed, allegedly owed, um, they're adding more and more on top of that. Um, they will then order, require um, additional services, um, additional monitoring, right? Ankle monitoring, drug tests, it goes on and on, charging for everything, right? Adding that to the bill, right? And then in several jurisdictions, um, the probation departments will literally require as a condition of probation, the full payment of that growing debt that they're causing and adding to, right? And, and you know, these are low-income families, you know, who are already struggling, already can't afford the initial fine, let alone the, the quickly ballooning fines and fees and everything that adds up onto that. And then a condition of probation is you got to pay it all, you got to zero it out or else you're never freed from probation, right? And that can literally be the result in some of these jurisdictions. So it's, it's again, yet, yet another example where probation departments collaborating often with prosecutors, collaborating often with the courts, right, towards this monetization focus rather than the intended focus of serving individuals with equal and impartial justice. In Chapter 6, you talk about policing as a business. Um, tell us more about how they're generating fees. Sure. Well, the, the, the methods are many when we look at our policing departments. Again, often collaborating with the other institutions of justice, with courts, uh, prosecutors, probation, um, and then often leading to the next you know, a section dealing with juvenile detention and the like. So the, the, the first we even look at the various examples of 
the iterations of what these policing departments are, what they're called, you know, often the, the police directly, sheriffs, and, and many jurisdictions, most jurisdictions are monetized through, through these practices. In some jurisdictions, they might have additional um, policing officers called city marshals in some states and others, constables, you know, terms dating back to colonial times and not in a good way um, when, when we uncover these practices. So just one of the examples of, of the city marshals out of, out of New York, uh, I write about in the book, um, city mar- they're called city marshals in, in, in New York, but they're not city employees. Um, and they're, they don't even get a salary, right? The, the only money that they generate is solely through this, is what's essentially a bounty hunter structure. Like they act as mercenaries, hired guns, right? To pursue the poor um, for every possible penny they can get from fines and fees collections to utility shutoffs to um, to um, foreclosures to evictions to seizing cars you know to just about anything right and they're taking their cut of this carceralized harmful monetary pursuit with a gun right? you know you know along the way and the, the city marshals, you know, according to the city's own numbers that, that I um, refer to in the book, um, after costs, right, after their, their, their own, you know, overhead, so um, net, um, the, the average city marshal in New York is listed as pulling in over $420,000 from this pursuit against the poor. Um, and then that's just one, you know, and uh, even in New York, while the city marshals are doing it, so are sheriffs um, and they're taking a contingency fee and jurisdiction and across jurisdiction, across jurisdiction in this country. Right. State after state, county by county, um, sheriffs are are chasing down a contingency fee, a commission. And some jurisdictions, I call it a poundage. Right. Again, an old term and not in a good way. Right through taking a cut of how much they pursue against the poor, and again, that's that's such a striking abdication of what's supposed to be their ethical obligations and what is supposed to be their constitutional obligations. Policing officers, right, are supposed to be guided by that equal and impartial justice, impartiality, um, as are our other um, justice officials. But when they're instead monetized, incentivized right, by money rather than their intended mission of equal and impartial justice, harm results, and I argue illegality results. And it keeps going, you know, as, as you look at these examples um, with the policing revenue schemes, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a hard chapter to write when it, because it's like, it's, it's not just the numbers that we see and, 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 and you know, as in, in each of the chapters and then when I, when I write about the, all the different forms of detention facilities, but then these reports and the data that I, that I write about, about the policing agencies, number after number, report after report, it's almost easy to become numb to the numbers. Right. And, and, and almost forget for a second that the, these aren't just numbers. These are human beings. You know, these are struggling adults and struggling children, you know, each and every number. And instead of serving each and every one of those humans, right, with equal and impartial justice, the systems are increasingly monetizing them. Sheriff sales are another example. And, and sheriff sales started um, literally with um, selling off enslaved human beings on the courthouse steps, right? I mean, you'd have a court that might issue um, an order in a civil case of, of, a, of a judgment of, of amounts owed against an individual who enslaved human beings. And then the sheriffs will come in, um, go after what they considered property, right? Sell off the enslaved human beings, right? And the sheriffs would take their cut, you know, and, and the sheriff sale, uh, a contingency fee. Those sheriff sales, right? You know, the same basic structure of pursuing property from from uh, court judgments, right, and selling off the property, right, are still happening with sheriff sales across the country. 
Um, and then we see examples I, I write about where, where some of the sheriffs are also sharing in these contractual revenue deals with child support, sometimes foster care. Um, and child support, I, I found um, contractual examples where sheriffs will even share the revenue they generate from arrests with the courts. So the more arrest warrants the court issues and the various 4D child support proceedings, um, and the more arrests carried out by the sheriff's departments, the more money the courts make, the more money the sheriffs make um, th through the process. And it, and it just keeps going, you know, as, as you pull through with there, there was an example out of Florida that I, that now there's been some pushback, I believe in Florida and I hope it, I hope it ends, but some, several of the sheriff's offices in Florida had actually contracted to take on the child protective services role so they can pull down more of this foster care for e revenue pulling in millions right you know so again you know, like when you pause and think about that and, and, you, and you look back you know sean again as we discussed you know he and his mother who are already struggling um you know with with all the barriers uh to poverty um and you think about like sean you know foster children in this in this country suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd at twice the level of veterans of war and it's just like, and it's often unending for, for the children who are pulled into the system. I have a, a colleague that I, that I have the honor to um, teach with, teach with frequently, Jess Emerson. And she talks about, and, and one of the lectures she provides, you know, about what if there was no post to post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So if you have a children you know, traumatized from, from the removal from, from their home and then traumatized in the, in the system, not getting the services that they need. And then the ongoing poverty doesn't end. And when they transition out of the system, um, stat by stat by stat are lined up against former foster youth. Um, and then continuing with the poverty of, of the, the, the trauma of poverty, it's, it's unending. So you know, again, Sean, you know, he could be initially monetized by the foster care agency. Um, um, you know, the, I, I wrote about in a, the book, the same foster care agency might be pursuing and taking his survivor benefits um, when his dad died. Um, and then the court enters a contract to, to generate revenue when, sh when Sean is removed from his home. That same court can generate more revenue through the pursuit of Sean's impoverished mother for child support to repay the cost of foster care that's just been caused by the court. Um, and then with additional contracts with the prosecutor's offices who are taking part in the prosecution, they can be monetized through both the foster care 4E and the child support, right? And then the probation departments come in and they're similarly con contractually monetized by, can be in some states by both systems. And then our policing agency. So then, you know, the court is incentivized if, it, if, it, if Sean's mother misses one of the countless hearings that she's obligated to come while she's struggling to try to find some type of employment to, to try to desperately get her son back. Um, if the court issues an arrest warrant, the sheriffs carry out that a warrant and the sheriffs and the courts share that revenue. So it's just the, the cyclical harm is potentially unending. In chapter seven, you talk about the economic development and the gelling of children. Explain this more. Right. Well, this is um, this is a hard chapter to write as well because it's just story after story of of, of devastating harm and, and and all the types of institutions that are detaining children and adults. Um, you know, sometimes in the in the examples I write about whether it's whether it's a government operated facility or a for profit facility, some of them are run by nonprofits. Some, you know, if they claim um, a religious purpose, then they can escape um, licensing in several jurisdictions and oversight in several jurisdictions. So potentially we have no idea what's happening in some of the, the, the facilities that claim the religious um, affiliation. But, you know, so the, again, you have the variations a bit, you know, and, and between the for-profit and government-run and nonprofit and religious-based organizations. But the, the basic business model 
is the same. Um, they're seeking to maximize bodies in the beds, maximizing occupancy, right? While minimizing cost of care. And it's a just a devastatingly harmful and sometimes deadly business model as we see in story after story across the country. And it's, you know, you look at sometimes it's a, might start with a small company, you know, that, that, that buys just a couple facilities. And then um, that company is bought up by a larger company, which is bought up by a larger company that's traded on the stock market. Right. I write about the example that some organizations um, claim a status called um, a real estate investment trust, REITs. Right. And the, and the whole purpose of that is to avoid taxation while they're generating profit and revenue from detaining from detaining children. Um, the, the harm is just devastating. You know, if Sean, you know, like if he's traumatized to start, you know, like now, um, and you pulled into this system, it's just magnified hundredfold, you know, and pulled into some of these types of facilities, what's happening. And, and um, we, what's so concerning as well, as, as you dig into the research, is how much we don't know, right? I'm almost more concerned about what we don't know than what we do know. I mean, what we do know is harmful, right? It's not good um, when you look at the impact of, of detained children and again in that in that effort to maximize occupancy while minimizing cost the use of of restraints and seclusion right is just so devastatingly harmful to children it is frequently used in and various iterations of these detention facilities across the country sometimes they're called good sounding things you know like a residential treatment center or sometimes a camp or a an academy and the like, but they're all detaining children and they're all adhering to that business model, maximizing occupancy, minimizing cost of care. One of the examples in, in this chapter that I write about, and there's been um, multiple excellent examples of both local and national journalism looking into some of these facilities. Um, there's a company that, that originally started um, with um, changing oil, right? The oil change business and the founders, you know, of this oil change business suddenly realized, well, you know, maybe there might be money and detaining children um, that, that we could target. Um, one of the quotes from one of the founders literally described it as like, it's like drinking from a water hose, um, the number of children and the number, the amount of revenue that can be pulled in. So it's, it's just, again, another just stark example of this shift what is supposed to be you know, only using these these facilities as a last resort you know when only have to have to be used and again only focused on maximizing welfare and equal and impartial justice and instead running like a factory and it's just uh, the the harm cannot cannot be overstated in chapter eight, you talk about census data and you give us some examples of the disproportionate number of blacks that are involved in this system. Can you give us some examples of that? Yes. Um, the, the examples are, are um, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to almost say endless, right? You know, each of the examples uh, that I write about in the book, you know, the, the various revenue contracts of each of our institutions of justice have a vastly disproportionate impact based on race. And, and many times that disproportionate impact dating back, right, to pre-Civil War, even to some of the practices. You know, if you look at even just considering the child support program um, in America, that 4D program grew from what had been initially called the Bastardy Acts. Um, and before that, in, in England, the poor laws, which criminalized, penalized low-income individuals, right, simply for having a child labeled out of wedlock. Um, and then the U.S. early on, you know, these systems were primarily focused against harm, um, harmful operations against black families. Um, you know, it's it's that there was a, one of the strategies 
that was used um, early on was called the man in the house rule. Literally where if you have a, um, a family who's you know, desperately needing some minimal public assistance, um, welfare, you know, called more generally in this country, First, early on in, in the U.S., you know, the public aid that was available was not available to black families. It was only available to white families. Um, and then when um, gradually, you know, uh, black families finally began, became able to um, achieve some of this minimal assistance, largely through the Civil Rights Act, right, and the successes there, um, you had this this flip and mentality and in the white population, right. To start to demonize welfare, um, you know, and demonizing the phrases of, of, of um, welfare Queens and deadbeat dads. Right. So, and then these harmful punitive practices are predominantly carried out against black families. So literally with these man on house rules, literally banned, you know, the, the, any um, male figure, you know, the fathers from being present, even being present in the household. Um, families were forced apart and then blamed for being apart, for being separated, right? And now, like we see through these contracts, monetized through the harm of that forced separation that's still happening to this day. Still to this day, you know, our our interaction with the 4D child support and the TANF program in this country are still largely based upon that early structure, right? So it is still happens. And then you look at, you know, the, the data, you know, just it's, it's county by county. It becomes, again, almost overwhelming. Um, if you consider Cuyahoga County um, and, and Ohio, right, which is one of the county court systems that uses this juvenile court contract, right, which, which, where it can generate revenue after child removals. Um, and in that county, some of the numbers I found that the county juvenile court was adding about $1.5 million a year um, through that contractual revenue process, right, with children who are either being removed or labeled foster care candidates. Um, and then in Cuyahoga County, although black individuals account for about 30% or so of the population, the court records show that 75% of those processed and adjudicated by the juvenile court as delinquent are black youth. And, and again, county by county, you see very similar disproportionate numbers. You know, like one of the, there's a, a, that's just a concerning is such an understated word number out of, out of California and the, and the percentage happens in multiple jurisdictions. California study came out that showed if you're, a black child in California, there's a 50% chance that you're going to be, you and your family are going to be investigated by Child Protective Services dur- during your childhood, 50% chance. And it's, you know, like, I I don't know how, like, it's, I, I struggled to describe this, you know, in terms of the devastating continued disproportionate harm that's ongoing. You call for justice audits. Can you tell us about this? Sure, and and you know, in the in the um, in, in the conclusion of, of the book, I, I write about the importance of self reflection, right? Including these 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 ideas of of some form of justice justice audits, because I'm I'm not you know I've I've seen a lot of disturbing examples through both my individual advocacy and and through my research, but I still believe in the ideal. Um, of, of equal and impartial justice. We're not there, nor have we ever been there. But I believe we have to strive for that ideal. We have to, we have to be striving to improve, right? Otherwise, things tend to, the ideal tends to be reversed, replaced with the opposite. So, you know, beginning with that, you know, in, including beginning with awareness, right? And your, your show, you know, what, what you do and um, discussing the findings of, of research and books could not be more crucial um, in increasing awareness, right? And then as we become more aware, the, I believe that the that the righting the wrongs need to start with us, should start with us in the justice systems, right? You know, because we are ethically obligated. Even if you have a, a, a judge, a, a prosecutor, um, 
a policing officer, probation officer, an attorney. Attorneys, uh, I include myself within this as attorneys or officers of the court. If you have an individual who's striving their best, trying to do their best to adhere to their um, individual ethical obligations, if they're operating within a system that is ethically and constitutionally compromised, then I argue it's an ethical truism that their ethics are compromised. Right. You have to look beyond your own individual actions, right, to constantly be trying to strive for that ideal within the system um, in which you work. So instead of, you know, juvenile courts and prosecutors offices and probation departments across the country issuing annual reports and other documents that almost look sometimes more like presentations to investors. Right. You know, like they should be focused on audits and numbers towards improving and pursuing that ideal of an equal and partial justice. Like we need that honest mirror of self-reflection. Now, you know, we're going to need more than that. You know, if, if the systems don't write themselves, then we're going to need more litigation. Um, we're going to need, um, and we're seeing some, some have seen excellent examples in, in some um, states across the country, um, excellent groups like Civil Rights Corps, ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, and more, who have brought constitutional claims and we need more. We're going to need um, more efforts at transparency and oversight by government actors, you know, at the state level um, and federal level, level, including hopefully our Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. But that that idea, that mirror of self-reflection, you know, it comes from um, a, a particular judge, um, a Chief Judge Bell, who he would... Um, before he retired, would, would every semester um, help with our swearing-in ceremony in the clinic, the law clinic in which I teach, where law students learn by representing low-income clients. And one of the things he would discuss is this poem that he liked um, called Guy in the Glass. And, and the idea that, you know, at the end of it all, only you really knows whether you're being true to yourself. And he, and he used it as a way for the importance of, of continuously striving for those ethical ideals right, through um, our career as members of the legal profession. And, and Chief Judge Bell, you know, most people don't know a part of his own story. When he was, I believe, only 16, he, he became named plaintiff in a case that went up to the Supreme Court because he had taken part um, in a sit-in at a, at a local restaurant in, um, in Maryland, um, I believe in, in Baltimore or Baltimore County, um, um, that was whites only. Right. So he's, he's arrested. Um, and one of the then prosecutors on the case who was prosecuting him, you know, for simply being black in a whites only restaurant, um, rose to became the chief judge of the Maryland courts. Um, and then Chief Judge Bell would rise to replace that same very individual. Um, as the future chief judge. So just in terms of the, um, the historical arc in Maryland, I think it's striking and, and his message of, of self-reflection still sticks with me. What is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Well, I know I talk a lot about, of, uh, about a lot of um, not very uplifting uh, topics in, in the book, but I, we have to bear witness. And I think we have to understand, you know, like, any change needs to start with awareness and that needs to be, you know, full awareness so that we can move forward to make sure that any fix that we work on is the right fix. Right. But I also hope that readers come away with a message of hope, right? Because we have to hold on to that, that hope and that pursuit of the ideal. And I do think change is possible. It's not easy, right. As, as we see throughout history, but we have to keep, Striving for it, and and you know I've I've had the privilege of working with with other advocates and individuals who are directly impacted by these practice, practices, including former foster youth, on variety of legislative efforts in multiple states across the country, and seeing some success and some issues, such as for example that issue of foster care agencies literally taking survivor and disability benefits from children in their care. Um, now, because of increased awareness, increased attention by, you know, organizations such as, you know, and, and discussions such as what you're doing and members of the press, right, and ongoing 
advocacy and individuals raising their own voice, over 10 states have started to move in the right direction on that issue. So it's, it's, it's a hard, long battle, and, and I feel we have to see ourselves as both connected with those who fought before us, right, and those who are going to continue fighting after us. It doesn't end. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I, un, unfortunately, there's there's no shortage um, of, of issues to keep trying to expose. I've thought about potentially delving more into, and I've written about before, some of the issues with our Medicaid um, revenue maximization strategies that are causing harm to um, older individuals in this country and the entire elder care industry, where, again, um, both the private actors and the government actors are too often monetizing rather than than serving. Um, but, but I'm not certain yet. Well, we'll be looking forward to reading about that. And again, we've been talking with Daniel L. Hatcher, author of Injustice, Inc., How American Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much again for having me on the show. <laughs>